This morning is uh, September 19th, it's 2004, it's Sunday morning. Our topic this morning is going to be protected by adversity. Got me? Protected by adversity. As we've been covering some of the topics that we have lately, we've looked at uh, in agnostotheo. We looked at how the unknown God used adversity to bring people closer to Him because they cried out to Him. We talked about some of the instances, like with Hannah, where what would seem like a curse, her womb was closed by God, turned out to be a blessing because it caused her to make a vow, and that vow produced the child Samuel, who uh, turned the nation of Israel back to God, uh, one of the mightiest men that has ever lived. Those kind of things. We looked at the unlikely servants of God and how sometimes... We are characterized in some ways by our failures, but God uses those and turns them into strengths. All of those things. Well, this kind of builds on that topic. As we looked at the three mighty men, the three chiefs last Sunday, and then covered it again in some more detail on Wednesday, we looked at the things that are in all Christians, the ability to overcome, the ability to stand strong, the desire to lay down your life that God would see fame, all of those those things. Well... This morning, I want to look at probably the preeminent leader in Israel. If you go to Israel today and you ask uh, anybody on the street who is the most famous, famous Israeli in the history of Israel, a Jew is not going to tell you Jesus, even though that is the case. They're going to think of their national heritage, and they're going, if you, just, if you Christians limited it to this thought, who's the most famous Jew in the Old Testament, two names would come up. One would be David, and the other would be Moses. David was considered the darling of Israel, the singer of Israel. His kingdom was the first one that established the borders of Israel as anywhere close to what God had told them they would have. He handed that to his son Solomon who maintained it, but it was David who advanced it. Israel's never again held those borders, by the way. There's never been a time, the little bitty strip of land that would fit inside the state of Vermont quite a few times is not anywhere close to the biblical mandate that was given. David came very close to holding that biblical mandate. It's something that scholars debate. But because of that, we're going to look at the life of David and compare it to the saints and see what we can learn from it. Conventional wisdom says that the more uh, you succeed, the more prosperous you are, the more blessed by God you are. Uh, Conventional wisdom would say and I even sat in a church, as did Matthew at one point, many years ago before King's Harvest, where the conventional wisdom said, if you're not succeeding in the natural, it's because God is not blessing you. You might be under a curse. Uh, I'm here to tell you neither one of those statements are true. I mean, they're not even close to true. What we will find in the Bible is this, that many times the more God blesses a human being, the more it turns out to be to their detriment. While the, the harder the circumstances, the more it turns out to be for their benefit. Well, why on earth would we study something like that? Because it gives you great hope in adversity. As you face adversity, you can see it for what it is, the chance to be trained by God, the chance to learn to become an overcomer. I've been telling you since I got back from Israel, and I thought about telling you, focusing this whole thing on Israel this morning. And we may do that another time. But Israel has seen more adversity than any nation on earth. You know, there are 6 million Jews surrounded by 600 million Muslims. The average Jew produces 22 times what the average Muslim does towards the worldwide economy and does it without oil. Is that amazing? The most prosperous, productive people in the area, but the most persecuted, the most uh, despised. Matthew and Cassidy and Mandy went to the Holocaust Museum the other day. There has never been a people group in the history of the world that has been persecuted as many times and as very in places in, in as various places as the Jews have. There's never been a group of people since the beginning of the world that has been hunted to every corners of the globe, thrown out of countries in the way that the Jews have. And it's for one reason. God said, I chose them. Well, Jesus told us, no man's greater than his master. He said, if they hate me, they will hate you. Israel's the prototype to the church. So if that was true of Israel and if it was true of Jesus, guess what it's going to be true of? Us. The whole Bible points to a culmination in human history where the world has received the king that they want. And uh, because of that, we received the persecution that our king did. 
Because there's a battle between the kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness. Nations rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And it will reach a culmination point. And this is the day when the church must stand. Because we are the shining light in the dark darkness. We are what is holding out the word of life. If we escaped, if we raptured out, if we ran away with our tail between our legs and all of the things that the world teaches, there would be no hope for the world. But I'm here to tell you that God has a church that is not cowardice, that is not escapist, that is not scared to suffer. God is raising up a church that understands that it's in the suffering we find blessing. I've told you a bunch of times, in Israel you can divide it from the left to the right side with a mountain range right down the middle. The left side is the fruitful valleys. It's the valley of Sharon. It's the breadbasket of the nation of Israel. Uh, it's where you get the song, Rose of Sharon. All of those things. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It looks like Sandestin, Florida in some places, before Ivan showed up, before Francis showed up. I mean, it's gorgeous. The right side looks like the Mojave Desert for the most part in California. For the most part, it's dry. It's arid. Of the 350 biblical cities in Israel, 300 were on the right side. Only 50 were on the left. All of the major prophets came from the right side and not the left. God's people are birthed out of adversity. So turn with me to Psalm 34. All there? I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in Yahweh. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called... <laughs> And the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. Boy, that is the cry of a Christian. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him, and he saved him out of all of his troubles. The Lord's not looking for those that are not in trouble. You know, you, you can see that in the life of Jesus. When he showed up on the earth, the people that thought that they were not in trouble, the people that had no need of him, he had no real need of them. But the ones that knew they were in trouble, the woman that was caught in adultery, the woman who had had five, hu or five husbands and the man she was living with was now not her husband. Those were the people that cried out to him. Those were the people that he was close to. But the Pharisees of the world, they found no comfort in him. You know why? They didn't think they were in any trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Now here's the thing. When the world thinks of deliverance, they think of delivered from. The Bible speaks of deliverance as delivered through. See, delivered from, in, in our modern thinking, would be, oh, trouble's coming, let's get you out of here. But delivered through is, wow, there's trouble on every side, you're enduring, and the Lord's going to cause you to endure. That, that's the model in Egypt, that's the model everywhere. Even with Noah, that's the model. He didn't leave the earth during the flood. He endured right through it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are attentive to their cry. I tell you all of this to tell you that the Lord is with those who are in trouble. His ears are there for the afflicted. When you think of Jesus' mission statement to come and to seek and save that which was lost, when you think of what He said, the uh, Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the good news, to preach to and listen to all those people. Read Matthew and look in Matthew and see the difference between the sheep and the goats and look at all of the people that the sheep ministered to. When you look throughout the Psalms and you see God has a heart for one kind of people, those that were in need. And when you're in need and when you're in trouble and when you are afflicted, you'll find God is the closest to you. And yet what we tend to do, 
And it's totally natural. I mean, something would be wrong with you if you didn't tend this way. Is look for every way out of trouble that you can find. Now, to some extent, that's biblical. If they persecute you in one city, you flee to the next. But what is not biblical and what is not normal and what is not good for us is to assume that the Christian life is not supposed to be full of troubles. It is. And it's for your benefit. So turn to 1 Samuel. I, I'm sorry, y'all still in Psalms? Let's look at one other Psalm real quick because this kind of expresses David's heart. It's Psalm 119. And then we'll turn to 1 Samuel. In Psalm 119, verse uh, 67, you see a really mature statement. Starting 65. Do good to your servant according to your word, O Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe in your commands. What's he asking for? He's asking to be taught by God. Verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. Keep going. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Boy, is that powerful? You know, which one of you woke up this morning and said, Oh, Jesus, thank you, God, for making my life hard this week. But that's the same spirit that David had. You said, but it wasn't Jesus who made my life hard this week. It was me. Or it was the devil. Or it was a demon. Or it was your children. <laughs> Whatever it was. God works in it for your good. See, something that is, is unique about the Old Testament that confuses people, it confuses people everywhere. One time you see it says Satan incited David. Another time you see that the Lord incited uh, David, to take a census. Sometimes you see that uh, an injurious spirit that we'll read about came out from the Lord. While we would normally think of this injurious or evil spirit as coming from the devil, and you wonder. In, in the book, uh, speak, in, in the Old Testament, speaking about Micaiah, you see a spirit come from God that says something that's not true, and all of this is confusing. Well, in the Old Testament school of thought, to a Jew, they attributed everything to the source of everything. It didn't matter whether it was somebody in the economy on down the line. It's kind of like if a private who was re responsible for guarding a jail cell in Abu Ghraib screwed up, there are people in this world that would attribute that to the president. Why? Because he's in charge of it all. E even if that private wasn't doing his will, he's still in charge of it, right? So everything that the Bible speaks about in the Old Testament, they attribute to the leader, the guy who's over everything, God. So... Whether or not it came from the enemy, somebody we now know as the enemy, one of his minions, or your bad choices in life, whatever affliction is there can be used for your good because we know only good things come from God. And ultimately, everything comes from God. Does that make sense to you? Say, golly, you're, that's trickery with wording. Yeah, it is, and it's a good way to think about it. It really is because if you're called according to his purpose and you love him, everything, and everything leaves out nothing. Everything works for your good. Okay, so with that in mind, turn to 1 Samuel 16. I want to see, is it blessing after blessing that propels people into greatness? Or is it adversity after adversity? Or is it a combination of both? How does this work? If Jesus said to find your life, you must lose your life, and that seems like a paradox and we accept it, if the Bible says you must be born again, and that is definitely a paradox since a man can't enter his mother's womb a second time, then, and we accept that freely, then why is it that this other one has escaped us? See, there was a guy, and I meant to look up his name this morning, and I couldn't get my wireless connection to work right. There was a guy that was asked to persecute the church of God. And he was asked by an evil pope, and that doesn't really narrow it down since most of them were, he says, hey, I want you to go out and do something about these Christians because they're encouraging people to read the Word which is causing us to lose power. This pest has gone out to all of the people. That's what they called the Bible, the pest. And we've been unable to stop it. Yeah, it was illegal in Italy to read a Bible in your own language till 1869. But I'm sure they're, they meant well. They're our friends, right? Right. Okay, so he says there's this pest that's going out to all the people. We have to do something about it. I think it was Sir Francis Scott Drake who said this, but, I, you know, some old guy. 
said, uh, Sir, the church of the living God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. In other words, you're asking me to do something that everybody's tried to do and nobody can. You hadn't met hard until you met the church of God. We need to regain that attitude. We need to have the attitude that says, it doesn't matter what comes at me. I'm a member of the church of God and I can't be defeated. This is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That needs to be the attitude of the church because that's how you have an overcoming attitude. And it comes through proper understanding. Because when the devil begins to lie to you and you begin to receive it, all you think about is what you can't do and how God is unable and all of these things. And you begin to believe that what he says is true. When this one statement, this one idea, the more adversity you pour at me, devil, the harder I will get as far as armor. And the more I will advance and the tighter my foot gets on your forehead. And see, when you have that attitude and when that increases, then you can turn your face into adversity. You can smile at it. You can laugh and chase it and overcome it. And the more they pour at you, the more you see it as propelling you towards victory. Let's look at it in the life of David. In 1 Samuel 16, we see David as a young shepherd. This is verse uh, 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. I always liked his name, Eliab, because he was kind of a a liar, and it's easier for me to remember which one of David's brothers was. Eliab. I don't think I could name my kid that. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. Some short people out there like that. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. The outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. But he's tending sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent him and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord says, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. And we know Samuel did that. Turn the page in your Bible to the 17th chapter and the 34th verse. David was a shepherd. He was out tending sheep. He was not impressive. Well, I mean, he was impressive, but not from an outward standpoint like his brothers. And the 34th verse of the 17th chapter picks up in the middle of a story that we'll read later. But it says, But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. So David began his career for God. The first things that you know about David is that he was a shepherd. And what kind of adversity did he face as a shepherd? Well, as a boy by himself, he got to face a lion. He got to face a bear and the natural elements. He was opposed by the natural forces in the world. Every Christian that you will ever meet is opposed by the natural elements of the world. You know, we face sickness just like everybody else does. We face gravity just like everybody else does. We face the heat of the sun just like everybody else does. And this is the first thing that you have to learn is adversity that can work in your your behalf. It's training. You know, this is why the Bible says it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. Everybody receives this level of adversity. And... There are times where people like Jonah scorned it. You know, the sun was beating down on his head and he was angry about it. In Jonah's life, why was the sun beating down on his head? And it was God's means of turning him around, changing his mind. God will work through the natural elements in your life to teach you. In David's life, do you think it was exciting for him? Now, don't think of David as some kind of superhuman figure. Think of him as Elliot, who was here just the other night. Okay? A 14, 15-year-old boy out taking care of his father's sheep. 
and he sees a lion. How excited would you be to go to the New Orleans Zoo, scale the fence, get on the other side where the lion was, and have a sheep that you had to protect from it when it hadn't been fed for a while? That'd be exciting for you? You'd like to do it? No, I probably wouldn't either. Okay, well, the lion, if that wasn't a problem, climb the other side of the fence, get over there and have a big T-bone or something, and dangle it in front of the bear's face. And if it gets the T-bone from you, I want you to chase it down, grab it by the hair, strike it in the head, and kill it. Anybody here up for that task? Probably not, huh? But God used this to train that young man. So the first way that David was opposed was by the natural forces, the lion and the bear. And he was anointed as a shepherd. Turn to Samuel 16, verse 15. Probably on the same page. It says, Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem, who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is fine looking. And the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers, blah, 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 blah. He shows up. David's first appointment in life is what? A shepherd. And as a shepherd, he's opposed by the natural elements. What is his second appointment in life? He's a musician. He's a worshiper. This musician and this worshiper receives more adversity. As a musician and a worshiper, does he still have the natural elements to contend with? When he goes outside, is he getting rained on? Yeah. If he comes across a bear, does the bear still want to eat him? Yeah. See, the adversity hasn't gone away, but what has now been added that was not there before? Now he gets to contend with an evil spirit. The spiritual forces are now something that he is contending with on a daily basis. It was just the lion and the bear. He wasn't out there... Uh, Worshiping, trying to pierce the, uh, the spiritual veil that was over him to reach Yahweh God. There's no mention of opposition in a spiritual realm, only the natural. But now that he's become a worshiper, he's learning to engage in spiritual battle as well. So his first appointment's a shepherd. His second appointment's a worshiper. Adversity is increasing. You know, as a worshiper, he's got two major forms of adversity in his life. Turn to 1 Samuel 17, verse 28. Looking at the rise to power of David. 1 Samuel 17, verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and asked him, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are. And how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Eliab. You'll never forget his name, huh? The liar. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. What did the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear teach David? It taught David that when he was in trouble and he called out to God, God would be there. So when he faced trouble that was even bigger than that of the lion or the bear, he had no doubt God would be there. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Saul was a coward. He was shaking in his armor. He was willing to send a little kid that had been keeping sheep, a little kid that could play a harp, that 
that was there as a musician in his court to help him out to, to fight this man who had been fighting from his youth, who was a champion of a nation who nobody in Israel would face. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened the sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was, uh, and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took the staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones, and y'all know this story. He goes out, he knocks down this giant, and he cuts off his head. David was anointed as a shepherd, and the natural elements opposed him. Then David was anointed as a musician, and spiritual forces opposed him. Then David was the beginning of a boy prodigy something that was unusual, a superstar in the making. God had said he would be a king. He had trained him by being a shepherd, trained him by being a musician, and now, as a youth, he was conquering the very best of the adult ranks in the world. Did his adversity increase or decrease? Well, he still had all the same natural elements he was fighting as a kid. The sun was beating down on him. The rain was beating down on him. He still had all of the same spiritual forces opposing him. He never left that post. He still played the harp. He still worshipped. He still uh, broke through that spiritual canopy. But now, the finest adult soldiers in the world had him marked and wanted to kill him. David's advancing, though. He's moved from the field uh, into the palace as a worshiper. Now, he's beginning to progress in the ranks of the soldiers. As adversity is increasing in his life and he's overcoming, he's also being propelled from the foot of the table towards the head. We know that he cut off the head of Goliath and he goes and presents it to Saul. After being an anointed shepherd, after being a musician and a worshiper, and after being a boy prodigy, he developed into something else. Uh, a courtier, a, worship, uh, a warrior. He was a statesman in Israel. Long before he was ever king, he was a friend of a man named Jonathan and somebody of recognition in the government of Israel. And in 1 Samuel 17, verse 55, we see what happens here. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Isn't that funny? Saul's had to ask now three times who this was. Abner replied, As surely as you live, O king, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son that young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. And David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept with him, kept David with him, and he did not let him return to his father's house. See, he's advancing. He's gone from the uh, sheep field to the battlefield, now to the palace. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe that he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. David started as a shepherd. He moved to a worshiper. As he did that, his, his adversities increased from the natural elements to the spiritual. Then as a boy prodigy, he picked up even a new uh, element of adversity. Because he was somebody who was great when he was young, not only was he facing the best of the adult ranks, but even his own household began to turn against him. People like Eliab became jealous because he was so favored by God. Then he moved into a warrior in a courtier's position, a statesman in Israel. So now he has the natural elements, the spiritual elements, the natural nation enemies, the, those adult ranks, and also members of his own household. His godly advancement has now caused even the king to oppose him. In the fifth verse of 1 Samuel 18, we see that begin. Whatever Saul sent him to do, he did so successfully. Uh, that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. 
When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with the singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Then the next day we find out he tried to kill David. As David has advanced in the kingdom of God, as he has gone from the fields of the shepherds to the battlefields, not only have the natural elements been against him, not only have the spiritual elements been against him, not only has his brothers turned on him, but now he's even caught the attention of the king of the nation that he's living in, and he is against him. Is adversity multiplying in his life? Psalm 34, though, says that a man is blessed by God. The righteous are blessed by God and they're delivered from trouble. So when David was opposed by the natural elements, he was blessed by God. When David was opposed by the spiritual forces, the injurious spirit, he was blessed by God. When he was opposed by the enemies of God, Goliath, as well as his jealous kinsman Eliab, he was blessed by God. When his godly advancement had cost him to catch the eye of a king that was evil that God wanted to remove and the king tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, he was blessed by God. Do you see this relationship? The more the devil brings your way to attack you, to overwhelm you, to cause you to feel like you are drowning in adversity, the more blessed by God you are. It didn't matter what the enemy brought against David. He was blessed by God. You need to begin to associate in your life every hardship with a blessing from God. Not that the hardship is the blessing, but that the blessing of God will be there to overcome and carry you through the hardship. This is how you stand with your back to the Red Sea facing Pharaoh's army and you can look at him and say, I'm blessed by God. If it takes this ocean to swallow you up, my God will do it. And you do it confidently, knowing that God won't let you down. And how do you know He won't let you down? you're still here. He never has let you down before and you've faced adversity your whole life. From this age to this age, God has been with you. It has never stopped. You know He will because He always has. You know He's been faithful to you since you were a child. Why would He desert you now? This was the heart of David. It's why he had a heart after God. God had always been with him. And how did he know God had always been with him? Because he had always been just filthy rich in, uh, in luxury? No, because he had been in adversity since he was a child and God had delivered him every time. This is how God builds our faith. He allows a bigger trial to follow the trial you just went through. And when you think, I can't even catch my breath, I'm not going to be able to breathe, nobody can endure this, you do. And when you endure that, everything else seems small until the next one. But when you look back over the years, you think, what is bankruptcy to me? What is uh, the loss of affection of a loved one to me? What on earth can they do to me that God can't deliver me from? And you know what? All of a sudden, the approval of your peers begins to fade from your thoughts. All of a sudden, the attack of the enemy and all that is going to overwhelm you and conquer you and all that tells you you can't begins to fade from your thoughts because all you have been taught is, I've been opposed, but I've been blessed by God. We need to learn to have that attitude. When you see the lion, you look at him and say, I'm blessed by God. When you see Goliath, you look at him and you say, I am blessed by God. When you see an injurious or evil spirit, you look at it and say, I am blessed by God. And when a wicked king wants to snuff out your life because of what God is doing, you look at him and you say, I'm blessed by God. So that when somebody looks at you like Sir Francis Scott Drake who's been commissioned with the task of destroying you. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. This is like beating a hammer against an anvil. I can't win. And you begin to build a reputation for yourself in the spiritual realm. This one won't go easy. Let's pick someone else. See, when I was selling security systems, it was impossible to make a house impenetrable by the enemy. 
There is no way. I mean, you could dig a hole in the ground and come up through the slab. So we put mats and sensors there. So you burrow in through the roof. So we put a motion detector there. So you crawl in through a window in a corner where there's not a motion detector. So we put window protection there. So now you take a jackhammer to the wall beside the window and you go, there is no way to prevent a criminal from getting in. So do you know what you do with a security system? You make your house the least attractive target. Because when the thief looks and he sees something on the windows, and when he goes to the door and he sees a sensor, and when he peers in and sees a motion detector, he begins to look next door to see if there's an easier target. When your attitude is, I am blessed by God, and every adversity that comes my way, I will destroy, all of a sudden, Satan's armies begin to go, I might ought to leave Mandy alone. I bet I could go pick on a Baptist down the street and win. Baptist. Uh, some Christian, any Christian. The devil is like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, but he is not a roaring lion. He's like one. You know, Reinhard Bunker says he is a chihuahua with a megaphone. The problem is, most people believe he's the roaring lion. But when you learn to look at that lion and say, I'm blessed by God, he will leave you. He's used to it. He's not used to seeing that. He's used to seeing people that quiver because he's a lion. You need to learn to stand up to adversity. Quit getting on the phone and whining to everybody. Quit woe is me it. Quit praying to God as, Oh God, you have to deliver me. I don't know what I'm going to do. And start praying, Lord, I know you're with me. You wouldn't have brought this adversity in my life if you weren't going to propel me through it for my benefit. When we start to act that way, you'll find God is right there with you. He admires faith. It astonished Him at times. It's something that pleases Him. And the Bible says, find out what pleases the Lord. Amen. That's what the Bible says. Well, it's not something that we have to go dig up. You don't have to search in some esoteric group of books to find it. It's not buried in the Vatican that you can only get to through the Pope or some weird Jesuit priest. It's right here in the Word of Life. And it says, faith pleases Him. Well, what is faith? It's when you look at that problem and say, hey, I know you're there, buddy, but I'm going to act just like you're not because I don't care. I'm blessed by God. We can do that. It's not just a sermon on a Sunday. It is a lifestyle Monday through Saturday. You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> David goes from being an anointed shepherd to a musician and a worshiper and all the time adversity is increasing, but he's blessed by God. He goes from a boyhood prodigy into a courtier and a warrior, but he's blessed by God. David then goes to be king over Judah. 2 Samuel 2, 1 through 11 speaks of Judah longing for David, saying, we're flesh of your flesh, man. We want you. You're our king. The problem is that was just in Hebron over Judah. God had said, you'll be king over all of Israel. And there was another king that Abner had set in, and his name was Ishbosheth. So as David advanced through the ranks, as he gained King Saul as an enemy, along with all of the others that stayed there, he now has the problem of a divided kingdom and a rival king. See, his adversities multiplied along with his progression towards what God called him to. They didn't get fewer, they got greater. Think about Jesus' words on the cross or His thoughts on the cross. It's expressed in 2 Samuel 22. It's expressed in Psalm 22. It's expressed in a lot of places. Think about it. David's the one who said it, but he was prophesying as the king. He said, The strong bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. They're too strong for me. My life is being pulled down into the depths. He said, But the Lord Most High has taken notice of me from His temple. He has mounted His cherubim. He has flown... Dark clouds are a canopy around him. He has thrown his lightning bolts and he has scattered the enemy. So I will see the light of life. I will advance against my enemy. He's trained my hands for battle. I can bend the bow of bronze. He said, I have pursued my enemy and overcome him. I have trampled him like mud in the streets. So strangers are coming to me. Foreigners are cringing to me. When they hear my word, they become obedient. That is the kind of attitude that can't help but win. In the strongest adversity that you have, you're blessed by God. So he's king over Judah. And Israel and Judah have rival kings in the beginnings of civil war. 
And this could be enough to overcome a man because don't forget, he's still got Saul's army regime loyalists to deal with. He's still got the natural enemies, the national enemies. Philistines are still out there. He's still got his own jealous kinsmen out there. He's still got the spiritual forces that he's been contending with from youth. And he's still got the lion and the bear. His adversities haven't gone away. But I bet after he faced Goliath in battle, all of a sudden the lion didn't seem like such a big deal. And I bet after he did hand-to-hand combat through worship with an injurious spirit, an evil spirit, Goliath didn't seem like such a big deal. I bet after he led an army in battle against the Philistines and saw thousands of men fighting and dying, not much in the physical realm seemed like a big deal. After the king of his nation opposed him and tried to kill him after the king was seeking his life, probably didn't bother him when somebody else was seeking his life. See, your adversity trains you. It hardens you. Mandy's in a business called work hardening. What happens is after an injury, you are not quite the person you were before the injury. Even when the bones have healed, even when the surgery is complete, you are not sufficiently hardened to go back to work. It takes a process of exercise, of work simulation, of whatever it takes under supervision to get you there. Well, that's what adversity is. It's work hardening for the kingdom of God. The more work sim that they can throw at you, the more that that the devil can bring through adversity and God allows, the harder you get so that you can, like Jesus, turn your face like flint. You can resolutely set out for Jerusalem, though it means your death when you get there. You can only do that when you've been victorious in the lower levels of adversity. But David, every time he faced adversity, was blessed by God. So in 2 Samuel 5, In 2 Samuel 5, verse 1, says, All the tribes of Israel came to David. This is after the divided kingdom. He's put all of his enemies under his feet here. All of the enemies within Israel. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. David was king at Hebron. He's not king yet everywhere else. He was 30 years old. Jesus' earthly ministry was about 30. In the third year of his earthly ministry, they killed him. And he's declared to be king, and yet we don't see him king everywhere, do we? But just wait. There's a perfect period of time here at seven years. There's a perfect period of time. And we will see Jesus as king over everything with our own eyes. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. I don't want to read all the rest of that. David becomes the united king over all of Israel and makes Jerusalem its capital capital in about 1,000 B.C. He had been opposed by the natural elements. He had been opposed by the spiritual forces. He had been opposed by the national enemies of God as well as his jealous kinsmen. He had been opposed by Abner and all the regime army loyalists. He had been opposed by a rival king named Ishbosheth. And now he had the weight of an entire kingdom to rule as one man. But David was blessed by God. Here comes the turning point in David's life. There's no place higher for David to go. He's risen from the field to the ivory palace that he's going to build. Actually, that his son's going to build because he was a man of blood. There's nowhere left for him to go. He's ascended to the highest ranks a human being can rise to. So we see in 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 10, he gets Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 6, 17, he carries the ark up to Mount Zion. 
In 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16, he's given the Davidic covenant by God. Turn to 2 Samuel 8. Listen to these words. We're talking about a guy who has carried the presence of God up to a mountain for all the peoples to see, who's been united king over Israel for the first time. Guy who has defeated everything that has come his way. And now he's turning outward to expand the borders of Israel. And it says, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Metheg, Ammon, from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with the length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. Moreover, David fought Hadadezer, son of Rohab, king of Zobah, when he went to restore control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers and 20,000 foot soldiers. He's come a long way since he was fighting lions and bears, huh? He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Armenians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Armenian kingdom of Damascus. And the Armenians became subject to him and brought him tribute. Here's the key verse. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David has gone from being a boy who faced lions and bears to a man who can hamstring all of the enemy's armies. He's gone from a man who was fighting spiritual forces through worship to a man who is the head of the nation of Israel that is chosen by God, their leader, and really their spiritual leader too. That's why David wore the ephod. He has defeated all of the regime and army loyalists of Saul and seen Saul put to death. Not at his hand. He wouldn't do that because he honored God. David had always faced increasing opposition. And now he's begun to eliminate that opposition one at a time. There's no more natural enemies to contend with. The sun, the rain, all of those things that he had to face as a boy in the field as a shepherd. Now he's in a palace and he's carried around like a king. Somebody's got a little bonnet over his head when he walks outside to keep the sun from beating down on him. He's not getting cold at night. He's, he's not uh, having trouble keeping cool in the day. There are servants to attend him. There's no more national enemies to contend with. He started with Goliath and worked until he defeated all of the Philistines and subdued them, all of the Moabites, all of the Armenians. Everybody who came against him, he defeated. There's no more jealous kinsman to speak of, now that he's the united king over all of Israel. Eliab's not there calling him a liar anymore, accusing him of bad things. There's no more Saul. There's no more wicked king trying to kill him. There's no more civil war, no more dissent, no more Ishbosheth. So David is just blessed on every side. This ought to be the finest time in his life, right? Been given the Davidic covenant. This guy has ascended to a place where he has typified Christ and said to have a heart after God. And God's given him all the victory that a man could have. His whole life's been a success and all done before the age 40. Sometimes adversity is what causes us to prosper in the kingdom. Certainly worked that way in David's life. As adversity increased, it developed his faith and taught him to trust God. Even more importantly, because of adversity on every side, it kept his spiritual life focused. Turn to 2 Samuel 11. In 2 Samuel 11, by the way, 2 Samuel 8, 1 through 6 that we read ended with, the Lord gave David victory in battle wherever he went. Wherever David went. Now 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David had been so blessed by God. He had seen such victory over all of his enemies that there was no more adversity in his life. There was only blessing. He had become affluent. 
He was suffering from a disease, affluenza. Because he had become affluent and he had all he needed and he had subdued all of his enemies, it was no longer necessary for him to go out and fight these minor battles. The Lord had promised him victory wherever he went. But at the time when kings went off to war, David stayed home. What does this have to do with us? As long as there is adversity in your life, you see the blessing of God because you need it to succeed. But when you are so blessed that adversity has fallen by the wayside, there is a tendency to think you don't need it anymore. Now, none of us would admit that. David wouldn't have admitted it. He's not sitting in the palace thinking, I don't need God's blessing anymore. He's just not acting as if he needs it because there is no adversity in his life that is pushing him to his knees to cry out in prayer. There is no adversity in his life that is causing him to cry out to God because there is no way for him to win unless God helps because now he has his own arms he can lean on. One of them is Joab. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, you might say this is where the sin begins. He looked out and saw a woman bathing. But the reality is, had there been adversity in his life like there had always been adversity in his life, he wouldn't have been there to see her bathing. Where would David have been? He'd have been out fighting right beside Joab. This is the only time you ever read about that David was not fighting with Joab. When you read about the mighty men that we've studied, you know who was standing next to him in the field? All you have to do is read the parallel accounts. Eleazar didn't defend the field alone. David was there. Shammah didn't defend the field alone. David was there. Jabesh did not strike down 800 men alone. David was there. But not this time. David was so affluent that he didn't have to go. And you know the story. Lust entered when he saw her bathing. Lust led to adultery when he actually committed the sin with her. Lust and adultery led to the deception and the dishonoring of an innocent man, her husband. He even got him drunk trying to trick him. Lust and adultery and deception led to murder when he had Uriah put down. While murdering Uriah, the plan had caused others to die. Sin always takes you further than you wanted to go. See, in order to get Uriah killed, David had to say, look, take Uriah's regiment. Put them on the front lines. And when the battle gets fierce, everybody withdraw from that regiment. So it wasn't just Uriah that died as the result of that. You know who Uriah was? He was the 30th listed of the 30 fighting men. Because of this, a man named Ahithophel, who was his uncle, later becomes an advisor to Absalom, David's son the advisor who advises rebellion and becomes a thorn in David's side. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. By David's own mouth, he said that the man who had done this deserved to die. God spoke to David one time and said, I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Now, here's what God does for him. This is 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. God, those words must have been hard. You are the man. This is what, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. That looks horrible, doesn't it? You could be upset about that, couldn't you? 
You think, golly, God's punishing him. But this is just like every other punishment that God has ever given. You remember when He sent Adam and Eve out of the garden? Looked like it was horrible, right? He's excommunicating them from the presence. God is being so hard on Adam and Eve. But when you read a little closer, you find out that had they not left the garden, they would have reached out, eaten from the tree of life, and lived in a fallen state forever. So it was a blessing that God sent them outside the garden because this gave them a chance to die and be redeemed from death. You find out that in God's punishment, there is great reward. Well, what could it be in David's life? Well, let me ask you, what was the turning point in his life? Was he sinning with Bathsheba as a shepherd? No. Was he sinning uh, with Bathsheba as a musician? No, while he was contending with spiritual forces. Was he sinning with Bathsheba as he was a warrior, a boy prodigy out making a name for himself? Mm-mm. Was he sinning with Bathsheba as he became a statesman, a courtier, a warrior in Saul's kingdom? How about when he was king over Judah, dealing with Abner and the loyalist regime? Was he, was he sinning with Bathsheba? Uh-uh. How about when he became the united king over all of Israel and subdued all the enemies under his feet? Though? See, when David had no more adversity in his life, it gave the opportunity for him to get out of focus, for him to enter into things that he would never have had the time to enter into before. Everybody's mother told him, the idle mind is the devil's workshop. David had been blessed by God as long as he was opposed by the enemy. Always. Blessed by God no matter what the circumstances were, how overwhelming the odds were. He had been blessed by God. But all of that blessing, all of the putting the enemies under the feet was too much for the man. So what did God do for him? Did He just punish him and walk away? He returned adversity to his life so that David could finish his life stronger than he started. See, because now David's sons, through the product of sin, are going to begin to turn against David. The enemies of David are stirred up and begin to fight. There are plagues that he contends with. There will never again be a day when there's a battle and the king does not have to go into the battle. And this was not to punish David. See, that's the wrong way to look at it. It was to protect David. Because as long as David had an enemy in front of him, somebody to defeat for the Lord, he could be blessed by the Lord. The one time in David's life when he didn't do good, when he was blessed on every side. So God returned some struggle to his life for him. It's worth pointing out that the absence of adversity helped to create the environment where David sinned and that part of the punishment was a return to many of the same adversities David had already been delivered from. Think about it. This was a merciful punishment because it helped to prevent further sin. God returned national enemies. He returned enemies in his own household. He returned the elements back to him because David after this was put out of his palace on many occasions. He returned all of those things that had made David great and it was adversities. But we don't think of adversities as making us great, do we? We need to wrap this up soon so I want to cover a couple of things with you. Gideon. What is Gideon best known for? Fighting with an undersized army. Gideon. Did he make a name for himself in blessing or in adversity? made a name for himself in the midst of adversity. What kind of men did God choose for Gideon? He started with 30,000 and it was whittled down to how many? 300. What were the 300 that were chosen? There were two kinds of people. Those that knelt on a knee and lapped with their hand water to their mouth, looking around, and those that fell on their face to indulge their flesh and just drank face down. God wanted the 300 that were kingdom-minded, that were willing, that were looking for adversity and ready to meet it on any side. And with those 300, he made Gideon a mighty warrior. How about Paul? What was Paul's crowning achievement? What, did, what is Paul best known for? It's sitting in your laps. It's not the Dell computer. <laughs> Writing most of the New Testament. Where did Paul write it from? Prison. Paul's crowning achievement came out of the midst of adversity not from the midst of luxury and blessing. How about Elijah? What's Elijah best known for? Think about it. When you think about Elijah, 
on Mount Carmel, what's the one thing you think of Elijah? He called down fire from heaven. How did he do it? In the midst of a seven-year famine. Running for his life. Scared the whole time. Elijah's greatest moment, Paul's greatest moment, Gideon's greatest moment came from the greatest adversity in their life. How about Daniel? Daniel's best known. His crowning achievements are the visions that he wrote down for us. He did it while in lion's dens. He did it while friends were being thrown in furnaces. He did it under the threat of death on every side. How about Samson? What is Samson best known for? Killing more men in his death than in his whole life by bringing down the temple of Dagon on their head. Under what circumstances did he do it? His eyes were put out. He was in the midst of adversity and looked defeated. How about Moses? Oh, you could list so many with Moses. Whether it's the giving of the law or the plagues or the Red Sea, Moses' life was one that was totally full of adversity on every side and this produced the greatest triumphs that the world has ever known. How about Abraham? He's in Canaan. He's outnumbered by the nations around him. He's outsized by the nations around him. And yet they're intimidated because they see God is with him in the midst of adversity. How about Noah? Think about Noah. Noah saw a flood which the world has never faced before or since. What Noah is best known for is building a boat and saving his family in that. What would Noah be if there were no adversity in his life? What would you remember him for? You wouldn't know who he was. How about Jesus? Is Jesus best known for the blessings in his life or the adversities in his life? He rose to the highest place any human being ever has. He's a member of the Godhead because he was willing to accept the adversity of the cross for the joy set before him. He knew what it would produce. You need to look into the face of your, bless, of your adversity and see the blessing on the other side. You need to look at the cross. You need to look at the flood. You need to look at the outsized army. You need to look at the prison. You need to look at all of those things and see what is on the other side what you can produce for God by going through it. And that gives you the attitude, I'm blessed by God. Thank you, God, for putting this in my life because I'm going to come through the other side and achieve something for you. The nation of Israel seen more adversity than any nation on the planet. And that is why the nation of Israel will be chief among all nations. So why must Israel suffer like it has? Why must Israel be picked on by all of the other nations like it has? There's one reason why. Israel's destined to be chief among all nations. So why must Christians have more adversity in their lives than the wicked? Because you're destined to be rulers of the nations. You're destined for it. Men who triumph in adversity draw others to themselves. Why do you love Paul the way you do? Because of what he endured. Jesus said, if I be lifted up on a cross, all men will be drawn to me. See, He didn't draw people to Him by political campaign. He didn't draw people to Him by building a huge palace or a cathedral, which is how people would do it today. He lifted Himself up on a cross for death for all men and that drew us to Him. When you stand in adversity, other Christians will rush to your side because they'll be encouraged by the God that is in you. And He's only visible when you're surrounded by enemies. The rest of the time, there's just too much of you to see Him. But when the dogs are nipping away at your flesh on every side, it provides a means to see Jesus and you are blessed by God. We're going to close. Turn to the book of Psalms. I don't know. There's so much that I wanted to read. Write down Psalm 27, verse 5. Write down Psalm 46, the entire psalm. And then turn to Psalm 138. We're going to close with this verse. The title of this message was Protected by Adversity. If you don't get any other theme from this, you ought to get that when adversity comes your way, you are blessed by God. 
Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, He looks upon the lowly, but the proud He knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, You preserve my life. You stretch out Your hand against the anger of my foes. With Your right hand You save me. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of Your hand. I've been focused on the 8th verse for a long time. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. But when is the Lord with you? What does He say? Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. (laughs) Though the Lord is on high, He looks upon the lowly. You want the Lord to be looking on you? You want Him to be with you, helping you? You need to be lowly and in the midst of trouble. And that's how He will accomplish His purpose in your life. You say, you mean we're supposed to strive for it? No, you just don't run from it. (laughs) Each day has enough trouble of its own. You don't have to go looking for it. It will find you. But we are not the kind that tuck tail, run, begin to back up, get squeamish and want to get out of the race because it comes. When you see it, you stand flat-footed or you run towards it, whichever you can manage to do. And you say, I'm blessed and I will overcome. This is how you cut off the heads of Goliath. It's how you topple kingdoms like Saul's. It's how you maintain control even over a divided kingdom. It's how you rise in God's economy. It's by overcoming because you believe you're blessed on every side. It's how David did it. It's how Elijah did it. It's how Paul did it. It's how Moses did it, Abraham, Noah, and as many men of God as you can study in the Bible, you'll find they were all overcomers. It's time for us to close. So we're going to stand up and we're going to pray. And like the sign says over the door, we're going to perform out there what we've practiced in here. Today's practice session was on overcoming adversity, seeing it as God's method of protecting you. Amen. Amen. When you see professional athletes in the paper, what do you usually see them in the paper for these days? They're getting in trouble with the law. Does that happen on the field? Never. When does it happen? in their free time. We need to never leave the playing field of God's economy. See, if you are always in battle with the enemy, if you are always looking for the next mountain to climb for God, you don't have time for the foolishness that the world does. Y'all, let's pray.